News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah. Hopefully she's enjoying this beautiful weather. Let's take a quick look at some new polling. This was done by Ipsos and not the most fun topics, but certainly something that people are thinking more about. Over the course of this pandemic, Canadians admit they're admit they're having more frequent conversations about important topics. This was a recent survey done by Ipsos, and more than half of Canadian parents, 56%, say they are having more frequent conversations about their children's future. Additional conversations include concerns about finances, their financial goals and debt, 38% say they are having those conversations. And perhaps the one conversation that is the most difficult, I think most difficult for a lot of people, financial security if somebody was to pass away. 28% say they are having those conversations. The survey finds 6 in 10 believe that insurance coverage is a way to take control over an unpredictable situation. But more than one third, 35% of the Canadians surveyed say they do not have of life insurance. A majority of Canadians say they are confident in their family's ability to manage financially without them. If they were to pass away without life insurance, there remains a significant portion of Canadians who say they are not confident in their family's ability to manage. That sits at about 26%. People in the age group of 35 to 54 say they are the least confident in their family's ability for paying for things such as childcare expenses, housing costs, food, clothing, and other necessities. Interesting about the life insurance, because I was, well, I was under the impression that once you get to the point where you do have dependents and all of those kind of balls that you're juggling, that's one of the important ones. And I know a lot of employees, or sorry, employers have it mandatory. Over the course of this past year, one third, 28%, almost a third of Canadians indicate they have been evaluating their insurance cover coverage. However, many Canadians say they still don't understand the different types of life insurance policies that are available to them. Uh, 40% say they don't understand term life insurance or whole life permanent life insurance, and the knowledge gap becomes larger for universal life insurance and term to 100 life insurance. A majority of people those surveyed say they don't understand universal life insurance as well and have been having those conversations that they need to perhaps get those papers in order. I guess the good thing about that is you can do it, get it in order, figure it out, and then hopefully not think about it a whole lot. Who wants to be thinking about that all the time? Uh, that was one of the polls done. That was done by Ipsos, taking a look at about how Canadians are feeling on that topic. Another poll, and Gordon and I touched on this as well, this is a poll that looks at traveling, looks at reopening, and how Canadians are feeling about this. This poll coming from Leger and the Association for Canadian Studies. The majority of Canadians are looking to the government to take a slow and steady approach to lifting COVID-19 health measures. The online poll found that 69% of respondents thought restrictions should remain as vaccination efforts continue, at least until governments say they've reached or exceeded their targets. The survey also explored how people's lifestyles and habits may have changed during the pandemic. 37% of those asked say their level of physical activity has dropped. 16% of upped how much booze they drank. Nearly 10% say they've smoke more pot, and 40% say they weigh more than they did before the pandemic hit. Sandy Salerno, Global News.
How much more, you ask? Well, according to that poll, those who answered yes, they had gained weight during the pandemic, said they've gained about 16 pounds on average. And I think that's, uh, that's, I think a lot of people will hear that number and say, yeah, that sounds about right. Your thoughts on this or anything on your mind, give me a call on the buzz line, 604-331-2899. You can email me as well, jill at cknw.com. A reminder, our question of the day has to do with a plea that was made yesterday out of Point Roberts, the Chamber of Commerce, putting out another plea saying they are now facing the closure of the only grocery store in Point Roberts, the market place saying it will close its doors temporarily on July 15th unless something changes. And specifically, they want the border restrictions eased, allowing residents of Point Roberts, many of whom have Canadian and American citizenship, they want the border restrictions eased so they can more easily travel back and forth. They're also welcoming people to Point Roberts saying, we're all vaccinated. We've all got both of our doses. We are fully protected. We've had one case the entire pandemic. They're inviting people to come down and even get vaccinated if they need to. So my question to you, do you support the Canadian government getting involved and pressuring the United States to find a way that would allow residents of Point Roberts to move more freely between Canada and the United States? And feel free to give me a call on the buzz line and answer that question as well, or email me jill at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Be very clear with fully vaccinated travelers. You will still need to meet a series of requirements. That was Federal Health Minister Patty Haidu speaking yesterday when the announcement was made about the border restrictions and the relaxing of the quarantine rules for people who are fully vaccinated and authorized to travel to Canada. But what does that mean as we restart travel And do we have any idea what the targets are and when things might open up even more? Joining me now is Walt Judas, CEO of the Tourism Industry Association of BC. Thank you so much for being with us. Good morning, Jill. Good morning. What are your thoughts on this? I would imagine this is a good step, but there's still a lot of uncertainty as far as reopening that border and really getting travel back up and running. There is, to be sure. It's a good start. It's on the right track. It at least gives us some hope that we may see some movement on a plan to welcome international visitors once again, especially if similar protocols are extended to those uh, from the United States and eventually other countries. The the federal health minister has intimated, as you heard, that a plan is forthcoming, but for us it couldn't come soon enough. How much timeline or how much uh, leeway do you need as far as being able to plan? Uh, I know it was brought up yesterday that it's just saying that, yes, this is coming. There's more information coming. doesn't really help people, whether you're from the States or from even further away, trying to actually plan. Can I plan something for August? Can I plan something for September? How much uh, lead time do you need? Well, it really depends on the business, to be sure. There's lots of things that a business has to do to restart again. You've got the onboarding staff process, which is about recruiting and hiring and training. You've got maintenance on systems that have been largely idle, ordering of supplies, cleaning, the sales and marketing activities. And again, that really depends on what type of business that you're operating. But really what this creates is, again, more uncertainty. Do operators uh, really know what to tell their guests 
at this point, those that have planned trips or those that deferred trips from last year until this year, with the rollover on a monthly basis, they're simply at a loss and in some cases have had to cancel all of their business or are contemplating whether they're going to open or not at all this year. And how much are businesses depending right now on BC travelers with travelers being able to to go throughout the province? Uh, is it showing that uh, is it enough support I guess for businesses in high tourist areas such as the Okanagan and others and what's happening in places like the urban centers like downtown Vancouver? Well, at the moment, it's really all we have. So that's what businesses are relying on. And typically, British Columbians go to the hotspots around the province that they vacation in every year. So that would be the Okanagan, places in on the island, in the Kootenays, etc. It really does hurt the urban centres, though, like Vancouver and Victoria. And while there is some business, it's nowhere near enough to even sustain a hotel Usually hotels need at least 50% or more to break even. We're still seeing abysmally low occupancy rates in the major centers, like I say, Vancouver and Victoria. When you think about what drives traffic into the major cities during the summer months in particular, you have crews, you've got meetings and events, you've got sporting events, festivals, people here on business, etc. Virtually none of that is happening. So you're you're not seeing the volume of traffic here, but British Columbians are choosing to leave major centers like the Metro Vancouver area and, and head, as I say, to the major hotspots. So they'll fare well for a couple of months, but domestic travel does not sustain our industry for any length of time. Might be good for some properties or some of the resorts, etc., but it doesn't make up for the losses up until now and certainly won't from beyond the summer into the fall and winter months. So we desperately need to see international visitors again, and especially for those sectors that typically rely 90% on United States or international visitors. How are hotels staying afloat then? Are they still relying on, on the wage subsidy or on the government programs? How are they able to even continue keeping the doors open at that kind of capacity? Yeah, many are not, and many are perilously close to just shutting down completely. I heard a stat, it's a national stat, but without further government support, some 70% of hotels may not be able to open this year. So that tells you how desperate the hotels are. As I say, they need at least 50% occupancy. And so while we see pockets of the province where that will happen throughout the summer, Many other places within British Columbia won't see that level of people arriving. And so those hotels just simply will close up shop or they'll close up major uh, wings of the hotels or only have a handful of rooms open. Some have been able to sustain themselves because of business, you know, LNG or or, uh, some other kind of business. But for the most part, Many are still in, uh, in a desperate situation and cannot rely on domestic visitation alone. They need to see meetings again. They need to see uh, international delegates in those meetings and international visitors visiting those hotels soon.
What about the reliance on not just BC travelers, but across Canada? I know that's part of BC's reopen plan, even though that's never been something that has been stopped as far as people from other provinces coming to BC. Is there a push to get more visitors from other provinces? No question. In fact, everybody's looking post-July 1st for that opportunity to market more ambitiously and aggressively to domestic visitors from across Canada. That will be helpful again, but it doesn't sustain the visitor economy here over the long term. International visitors spend three to five times more than domestic. So while helpful and certainly welcome, it, uh, it's not going to be enough. So we definitely need that restart plan to start seeing uh, people from the United States and elsewhere visit our country very soon and our province in order to get our tourism industry back on track and be able to sustain those businesses that, as I say, are in a desperate state. I know yesterday the federal officials were asked about the metrics, what needs to be in place to open up the U.S.-Canada border, and they said they were being transparent and that more information was forthcoming. Do you feel like there is enough information as far as as soon as we hit this number, as far as vaccinations, the border will reopen, or do you need more information there? Well, I think that will be extremely helpful, and we'll begin to understand what the government is thinking about, but also we need information on whether this notion of a digital health card or proof of vaccinations will be something that people need. In fact, when they talk about Canadians being able to come back to Canada without the lengthy quarantine period, if they are fully vaccinated, then we think the same should apply to international visitors that have been fully vaccinated. So it's things like that that would be helpful to understand where government is coming from or the criteria they're using or the timeline or can we use accommodation of vaccines and rapid testing, etc. All of that would be absolutely vital to allow our industry to have a timeline and a sight line to, to plan and to start to talk to guests again to be able to welcome international visitors. All right. Well, Judas, we'll leave it there for this morning. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me, Jill. Walt Judas is the CEO of the Tourism Industry Association of BC. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, yesterday on the program, we talked about the fact it was National Indigenous Peoples Day and a lot about reconciliation and what's been happening in Canada, given the recent developments. Of course, one of those being the discovery of what's believed to be more than 200 children in unmarked burial sites near the former site of the Kamloops Residential School. So a lot of focus has been on that. But another group of people in this province say they are feeling forgotten. And joining me now, to talk more about that is Daniel Fontaine, Chief Executive Officer of the Métis Nation, British Columbia. Daniel, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me on, Jill. Uh, When you talk about that and the reference, the forgotten people in BC, can you expand a little bit more on on what that that means? Yeah, the the Métis people are often referred to actually as the forgotten people, and it's often because When people think Indigenous, they think uh, strictly First Nation. They don't um, often realize that there are three peoples that form um, the the terminology Indigenous, and it's First Nation, Métis, and Inuit. And in the province of British Columbia, there's there's over 90,000 Métis people that are actually across uh, the province. We have our own government, we have our own cabinet, we have cabinet ministers. But oftentimes, uh, you see 
uh, news stories or government announcements, and it's like the Métis people don't even exist. You don't see them, um, uh, we don't see us kind of being referred to uh, in, in the media and in the, the public discourse, and that's, that's concerning to us because that has huge impact when it comes to our government's ability to be able to deliver things like education programs or skills training programs or being able to take care of children in care. And we know that uh, Métis children in care, there, there are literally hundreds of children in care right now that uh, require our assistance and we're unable to do that. Uh, I want to talk about children in care and the percentage as well. But you mentioned also funding initiatives, things like education. And we recently had the education minister announcing the back to school plans, what things are expected to look like come September. And I know the Métis Nation put out a release shortly after that announcement saying once again, uh, they had been forgotten in this. They hadn't been uh, included. Where was where do you think things kind of fell apart or what was missed in that announcement? Well, I can tell you that when uh, I got a call from uh, Minister Deborah Fisher, our Minister of Education, when she received the information regarding that announcement, and it was an announcement for $5 million to assist Indigenous communities, to assist with the, the whole return back to school. Uh, it was funding through COVID, uh, COVID dollars. There was a $5 million announcement, and there was actually wording in the announcement that uh, Métis Nation, uh, our 38 chartered communities, were expected to do a whole series of things to help kids get back, to go back to school. Out of the $5 million, Jill, 0.8% of that funding went to Métis Nation. <laughs> the, the rest of it was, was uh, uh, parsed out to other First Nation uh, communities. And that, uh, you know, our, our minister was really uh, very upset about that, and we communicated that to the Ministry of Education, to Minister Whiteside, uh, but that, that simply isn't fair. It doesn't represent the fact that Métis people are one-third of all the Indigenous people in British Columbia, like a third of the entire Indigenous population, and yet uh, out of $5 million, uh, we've been provided with approximately $40,000 to run a series of programs and trying to get kids ready to go back to school this fall, and that, that's simply unacceptable. Uh, and not to oversimplify it, but would you say Métis children have similar challenges or is the need mm-hmm. for the funding the same or on the same level? Oh, absolutely. If you look at the data and, and whether it's uh, um, health outcomes and, and the fact that uh, Métis people struggle with issues of uh, diabetes, hypertension, there's lots of illnesses that Métis people have uh, and struggle with across the province as compared to non-Indigenous you look at uh, outcomes on education, it doesn't matter which area you look at, there are some severe challenges. And I'll give you an example. Uh, For the Ministry of Health for the last year, uh, we were provided with $200,000 to provide health services for 90,000 Métis people across the province. And what we're saying is we are pleased that the province is is investing in things like the First Nation Health Authority, which they do provide, I believe, around $60 million dollars, we, we applaud those investments, but you can't do that at the same time while you're only providing $200,000 to assist Métis kids and Métis families across the province. So something's happened. We're not sure what's going on, but even their own declaration of the rights of Indigenous people, the legislation that the provincial government brought in, we weren't consulted on that. We found out about it, I believe, a day before it was actually announced. Again, it was like they forgot us. They didn't even realize that Métis people existed in the province of British Columbia. And so we're... We're hopeful now that they're, they're, they're consulting about this legislation that I'm hoping they're going to listen. But if the last few months are any indication, there's some serious concern from our cabinet and our government in terms of where this, this government's going.
Uh, we've spent a lot of time the past few weeks looking at the history of British Columbia and trying to, to deal with or, or come to terms with the discovery in Kamloops. Mm-hmm. What is the current situation, though, as far as the percentage and when we're looking at Métis children who are still in government care? Mm-hmm. Well, the numbers are, are then that's part of the problem, Jill, is we don't actually have an information sharing agreement with the province. We don't even actually even know that the, the total number of kids that are in care. We've heard estimates of about 750. The provincial government is, states that it's lower than that in the, in the mid 400s. Regardless, there are several hundred kids right now that are, that, uh, considering the percentage of population we have in BC, we are way overrepresented within the child welfare system. And we need to do something about that. And that's where uh, being able to have the uh, jurisdiction, the right to actually uh, manage your own affairs is critical. And, and we did pass just, just this uh, spring. Our citizens came together and voted to pass uh, a motion to move towards self-government. And we're going to have to sit down with the province, and it will likely take a few years, but we're going to have to sit down and, and make these arrangements and, and negotiate something with the province of British Columbia that works for Métis people and the province of British Columbia. Uh, that sounds like a positive step, though, doesn't it? It is a positive step, but, you know, as they say, it's where the rubber meets the road, and uh, we are going to be sitting down and, and putting a number of the items I've raised with you today on the table but, you know, we can't wait for two or three or five years to get these things done. There are immediate needs like COVID. There are immediate needs like, like health care and, and, and advanced education and a whole range of other things that our citizens are, are waiting for supports on. And, and we simply don't have the resources to do that. Our, our government is quite small. We're not a, a large uh, government in terms of the context of the population that we have. But we're doing our best to service the needs of, of our citizens across uh, British Columbia. But... We do need to get to the table uh, much faster and we need to try to negotiate something to be able to allow us to deliver the services to Métis people across the the province. And just before I let you go, have you had any response from the education minister or anybody else in government to your concerns about being overlooked once again? No, it's been uh, radio silence. I haven't checked my email this morning, but uh, it's been radio silence over the last week. We haven't heard uh, any feedback from Minister Whiteside or any of her uh, staff regarding the rationale for only providing 0.8% of the uh, total funding envelope to Métis people, notwithstanding our representation of Indigenous. So I'm not sure what's going on. Um, Obviously, this decision was made before the announcement, and and I'm not uh, sure if they're prepared to reverse course, but we're encouraging them, and Minister uh, Fisher is encouraging Minister Whiteside to look at this and to uh, reverse course if possible. All right, Daniel Fontaine, thanks for joining us. We'll leave it there, but thank you for your time today. Thanks so much, Joe. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we have been paying a lot of attention to the emissions that come from buildings, the reduction of emissions at a local level. What about renewable natural gas? What role does that play when it comes to getting those emissions down? Well, joining me now to talk more about that is Joe Mazza, VP of Energy Supply and Resource Development for Fortis, BC. Joe, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Jill. It's great to be on your show. We talk about natural gas quite a bit. I think people know what that is. Many buildings have that. Homes have that. What's the difference between natural gas and renewable natural gas? Well, renewable natural gas is uh, it's a sustainable, certified carbon neutral energy. And it, it, it's a real big key to a low carbon future here in BC. So it comes from generally from organic sources. And what happens is uh, organic waste, it can decompose 
and turn into biogas and then be injected into uh, the regular natural gas grid and uh, blend seamlessly into the system. And uh, existing appliances can run on RNG. Natural gas is uh, more traditional, conventional natural gas comes from uh, upstream sources um, as well. And so we've got both natural gas and RNG. And is there a big price difference between the two? Uh, There is uh, a bit of a premium on renewable natural gas. Um, It is, um, like, for example, if one were to elect to use renewable natural gas, they would pay about, uh, say, if they blended in 10% into the system, they could pay about a $5 premium uh, per month, as an example. Um, But the thing is, is renewable natural gas, uh, like natural gas itself is about one-third of the cost of electricity in B.C., and so renewable natural gas is a bit of a premium. If you were to go 100% RNG, you'd be about 70% of the cost of electricity. So it still is a, a pretty good advantage to use natural gas uh, and renewable natural gas. Right. So still comes in under the price of electricity. Yes. Are we using it in areas right now as far as uh, know, public transportation or are we using it in buildings or what, what is the use at this point? Absolutely. We're using it all over. Um, right now, we've got a number of different uh, sources. Uh, for example, it can come from wastewater treatment plants. It can come from agricultural waste, uh, landfill waste, uh, the green bins like residential or organic waste from municipal curbside pickup. So that's the sources of it. And then uh, customers can use it for many different uh, uses because it's basically indistinguishable from natural gas once it gets into the system. So it can be used for building um, to reduce carbon emissions. It can be used for transportation for buses and it's being used for that um it can be used for marine fuel as well so there's a lot of different applications and that's why we're really excited about the opportunity to help uh, our customers lower uh, their emissions and in fact that's part of our our strategy we've got a a target a 30 by 30 target uh, we aim to reduce customers emissions by 30 percent by uh, 2030 so we're excited about the, the role that RNG has to play there. Is it something that might take the place or at least be added to? Because we tend to look at electric vehicles and the big push, even if we look at Vancouver's parking initiative when it comes to electric vehicles and pushing people to purchase those, are we kind of not paying enough attention to where renewable natural gas is also an option when it comes to buying and operating vehicles and doing it in an environmentally friendly way? Well, we think they're both important. I mean, uh, we've got uh, a number of vehicles that are using compressed natural gas and uh, liquefied natural gas, and uh, renewable natural gas can be used as well. So there's many applications for the sort of midsize and heavier-duty vehicles. Um, but electric vehicles are also uh, important. In fact, in the interior of our system, we, we operate the uh, electric utility in the interior, and we've got a number of charging stations there too. So they're both important, and uh, we need both systems, both the gas and electric, working together uh, to help reduce emissions and uh, help with our climate action goals. How does it work as far as companies beginning to use renewable natural gas, whether it's in buildings, in vehicles? Does it come, do you have to retrofit, or how do you make it so that's compatible? Well, right now, like I say, renewable natural gas is indistinguishable because the the chemical uh, composition of it, and that's the beauty of it, in that um, the existing infrastructure that we have can can actually accommodate uh, RNG quite quite easily. We've got 50,000 kilometers of gas lines uh, throughout the province. That's enough to wrap around the planet one and a quarter times. So 
part of our strategy has been to actually repurpose and reuse that infrastructure um, with renewable gas. So there's a, a huge affordability advantage with that, that we can just, um, rather than, um, you know, it, so for that, for that reason, we we're reusing the existing infrastructure so we can supply renewable natural gas and then help customers lower their emissions. That's a lot of gas lines in the province when you put it in that, create that picture of uh, circling the globe. Well, that's the beauty of it is we can, we can reuse that infrastructure. And so affordability is really important, right? So we're trying to ensure that not only is there clean energy infrastructure in place, but we also have affordability for customers. We want to make sure the system's reliable and resilient. And so we need to look at uh, infrastructure from, from all those lenses to make sure that it uh, meets not only climate goals, but helps customers with, uh, with their energy needs. I understand, too, uh, that an agreement has been signed uh, working with a company, and this is taking a look or providing renewable gas from forestry waste. Yes, and that's a, a large opportunity. Um, many of our uh, sources of renewable natural gas come from, um, like I mentioned earlier, wastewater, agriculture, landfill. Um, but we're also looking at forestry by, byproducts, and that's a, a huge opportunity to increase the amount of renewable natural gas in the system. So we're working with a company in the interior um, to, to try to advance that project so that we can supply RNG into the system. And how important do you think this is as we continue to see the region grow? We've been talking about density, about more people calling the Lower Mainland, calling BC home. How important is it that we make sure that's also in line uh, with the more demand, making sure that that demand is, is, is met with things like this that are more friendly? Well, it's just important to, uh, you know, there's renewable natural gas plays right into that because we can help uh, businesses and communities help uh, grow their grow the economy, uh, but also conservation is also important. And uh, if you look at the last four years, we've invested close to $400 million in rebate programs on efficiency and conservation. So it's important to meet demand. It's also important uh, on the energy efficiency and conservation piece. So, um, yeah, and again, it's all part of our, our strategy to 30 by 30 to try to reduce emissions uh, by 30% by 2030, and we're on a very good trajectory there. In fact, uh, last year alone, we were able to help reduce emissions by uh, 420,000 uh, tons, um, which is right on trajectory for our, our plan to reduce emissions by 3.9 uh, megatons by 2030. So uh, energy and the environment and the economy, it's all important. All right. Joe Mazzo, we'll leave it there for today. But thanks for your time. Thanks for coming on and talking about this. Thanks for having me, Jill. Joe Mazza is the VP of Energy Supply and Resource Development for Fortis BC. And thanks again for joining us on the program. We are going to take a short break. A lot of people have been weighing in, joining the conversation on our question of the day. It's about relaxing the border between the United States and Canada at Point Roberts with the bulk of the population there. Many of the dual citizens already fully vaccinated. Many people in favor, a few people saying no, it's too soon. They'd like to see things holding off for a while yet, but a lot of people saying yes, absolutely. At least open it up partially. This is Mornings with Simi. Raji Sohal, Mornings with Simi contributor, is joining us once again with more on this story about a local mural project that is bringing so many people together. Raji, what a great story. 
Jill, I found out about this story in the best way possible. I was driving by Ross Park in South Vancouver. That's 59th and Ross. And I saw some Punjabi grandmas, or as we like to call them, babies in our community. I saw these ladies in traditional Punjabi suits like salwar kameez and their chunis around their necks flying in the wind, holding long paint rollers and painting at Ross Park, painting the pavement bright pink, yellow, orange, blue. And I thought, what is going on? Because first my inclination was to see these older ladies leaning over, working hard. And I thought, oh, I should help them get a little bit closer. Oh, wait, Mm. something's being organized here. (laughs) And so I went up to them and I found out that they're helping um, a local artist who's a lot younger than them, Sandeep Johal, make this incredible, huge mural at Ross Park on the ground there. Um, Sandeep Johal's work is already seen throughout East Van on buildings, inside restaurants. And this whole mural is a, a project between Moberly Cultural Center, UBC, and then Sandeep and these grandmas. Uh, Sandeep Johal's parents immigrated to, to BC too, so from India. And so she understands uh, what these women's stories are. They were asked to submit stories to Moberly Cultural Center about their lives and in the hopes that Sandeep would make a mural that they would all paint together. She did a mock-up to show them what it was going to look like, and they loved it. Here's Sandeep Johal. So I have depictions of being in the bend, you know, with like a cow and a bird, and then I have a Fulgari pattern, um, and then references to, you know, that sort of carefree youth of like freedom in the village when they were younger, and then an airplane depicting that flight to Canada from their respective countries to this unknown place, um, which then turns into a kitchen scene um, depicting the women, the women as more mature and older. And, you know, cause like food is such a, a huge thing in our culture and such a gathering space, um, a way to connect and show love. And so I really wanted to make sure I incorporated the kitchen and, you know, maybe some ingredients that have to do with our cooking And then it kind of finishes off with uh, kind of this like tree with leaves and a bunch of birds just resting on the branches, showing what these women have built since they've come here and how their families have grown. What's so neat about that too, Jill, is that these Punjabi grandmas, they don't participate in community art projects. They are at home cooking for their families. They are taking care of the grandkids. They don't get a lot of leisure time to themselves. So it's neat that they're doing this all together. Here's Sandeep Johal on, on what the mural is about in a larger sense. Yeah, I think it's really highlighting um, how important it is to connect with underrepresented groups and to make sure that we're sharing their stories and we're showing people that those stories are important, creating that sort of visual piece for it. You know, so many people are going to see that and they're going to get a sense of what this space means to this community and just making sure that, you know, our resources are going to communities who could use them. What's been surprising to you about undertaking this project? I didn't realize how much I would love it. Like I love this project so much. I love how there are so many community stakeholders in this project and how many people had to come together to make this a reality. I love the women. I love working with them. Like I just, yeah, it's made me realize that I want to do more community projects because that energy is just like unrivaled. Wow, that's so amazing and so great that you were able to bring us this story and you found it just by happening to drive by. So is it continuing now? 
if you're in South Van today, roll by 57th and Ross around Ross Park, and you'll see a brand new, large scale, very colorful mural being painted on the ground by a group of South Asian grandmas. They have been amazing. Like for the last two days, they have been working so hard with me, rolling that paint onto the pavement and just really excited about bringing their stories to life. That's Sandeep Johal. She's an artist who has been working with these South Asian grandmas. Basically, it's a community project. Lots of partners involved. Moberly Cultural Center runs a storytelling program for elderly Punjabi women. And a UBC master's student has been given, giving the women um, weekly prompts, asking the women to share their stories and poems about their lives. And then artist Sandeep Johal uh, has been turning them into visuals, making this huge mural that the grandmas are helping her paint. And you might already know Sandeep's murals. They're already around the city in Mount Pleasant, West Van, South Surrey. They're in restaurants on the sides of huge buildings, always very colorful, always like motifs inspired by uh, Indian Punjabi art. And Sandeep says the location of this mural in Ross Park is super important. The location is really important because we wanted it to be somewhere that was meaningful for the women from this community. And Ross Park is a meeting place for these women and for a lot of residents in South Van. And so we thought that would be a great place to put the mural. That's Sandeep Johal talking about the mural that she's making with these uh, South Asian grandmas at Ross Park right now. So the mural itself has scenes of birds. Um, It's very colorful. There's uh, symbols of Food, which is so important to Punjabi culture. There's an airplane symbolizing the flight to Canada from India that all these women would have taken, undertaken when they immigrated to Vancouver. And color is important for Sandeep and the grandmas too. Uh, They loved it. (laughs) Yeah, they really loved it and really excited about the vibrant colors, you know, because I think like in our culture, especially, right, color is such a huge thing and it's so vibrant and colors are so bold and so rich and Vancouver is not a super colorful place. So to bring that piece of our culture into this public space that they spend a lot of time in, it's like bringing a piece of home there. Interesting. You know, I didn't actually think of it until she just said that, that it isn't a super colorful place. There's a lot of gray, a lot of glass, a lot of buildings that look similar. Uh, So what a great thing to do to bring this piece of color that's bringing people together and telling these amazing stories. Yeah, and Jill, these women, they have been meeting in the Ross Park. We are talking for decades. I remember when I was a little kid, I knew South Van to be one of the first community areas for Punjabi immigrants, and my cousins all lived around that area. And we would go to that park all the time, and you would see these Punjabi women together, Punjabi men together, and they would be there in the afternoon catching up with one another. And yes, they weren't reflected. They weren't represented in any way with any art in that space. So I think for them, it's really special to to be able to see some of their culture there in the park where they meet each other often. And the neat thing about today is that the general public is welcome in this heat mm. to come and participate and, and paint the mural with them today. And they're going to be doing this throughout the week, but today is the general public day. Nice. Bring a, a hat and some water. Ooh. Probably a good oh, yes. idea. A lot of sunblock. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, you may have mentioned this. So what's going to happen to the, to the mural? Is it temporary or it's going to stay there? Or what's the future for the mural itself? Yeah, this mural um, is quite large and it's being painted on the ground. So it would require just constant restoration. So we will be able to see it through until the fall. And then at that point, I think that the, it's going to be covered again. It won't, it wouldn't be able to last uh, our weather and constant rain, I think. 
All right, but still a lovely bit of color and storytelling and bringing people together. So hopefully, uh, if people have some time and they're able to go join today, today is the day. Raji, thank you so much. Thanks, Jill. That is Mornings with Simi contributor Raji Sohal.